Welcome to TCN Talks. I'm your host, Chris Como, and the goal of our podcast is 15 to 20 minutes of relevant need-to-know to help you in your role as a hospice, palliative care, and serious illness leader at all levels of the organization. So our goal is concise, relevant need-to-know to help you in your role. And the bookend of our podcast is always something to make you think deeper, just about the topic, but also about life itself. So I'm excited today because our guest is my good friend, Kent Anderson, who's the president and CEO of Ohio's Hospice. Welcome, Kent. Hi, it's good to be here. It's awesome to have you. And Kent, I'm going to give you a compliment from the get-go. Whenever uh, I'm a huge Tim McGraw fan, and when the, when the song Humble and Kind came out, I'm like, Tim must have just met Kent Anderson. <laughs> but if he would have penned the song, I'd also say a brilliant, innovative mind to go with it. So <laughs> what do you think our audience needs to know about you? Um, I guess I'd start with, um, I've, I've been at Ohio's Hospice, which was previously, previously my role as Hospice of Dayton. And uh, beginning uh, in 2010, when I arrived, we started to look at the future of healthcare. And we said, you know, I think there's a, the potential for an existential crisis with, with hosp- not-for-profit community-based hospices. And when I first got into hospice care in 1992, 99% of all the hospices in the United States we're not-for-profit hospices, and today it's under 27%. And um, I think our, our mission and our service to our communities is so important. We said, how can we maybe reverse that trend or at least ensure the sustainability of the mission? So we've been blessed and fortunate. We, we've had seven uh, not-for-profit community-based hospices in Ohio join with us over the past um, 11 years. And so now we go collectively by Ohio's hospice. And we have the privilege of serving almost 70% of the 88 counties in Ohio. Uh, and we hope to continue to grow that. All Ohioans from our perspective are important, whether they live in urban areas or rural areas. And so I've been married for 37 years. Um, as, as I say, she's, she's still tolerating me and renewing my contract on, on, on an annual basis. Two uh, grown children, one serving our country in the, in the Air Force and the other uh, proud graduate of Ohio State University and living in Columbus. And um, my former life, I was a helicopter pilot in the military. So I went from helicopters to healthcare. I don't know that that's very linear, but here I am. And I'm, I'm glad to be here. I, I really appreciate your invite. Yeah, absolutely, Kent. Well, let me set the table because I'm really looking forward to this conversation. In fact, I've told a lot of our TCM members about this conversation. Um, so let me set the table because what we really want to talk about is what do boards need to know for nonprofits? Um, as you and I are both history buffs and my wife, being the geek that I am, always kind of feeds that geekness. She gave me a fascinating <laughs> book a couple years ago and it talked about how you even have kind of uh, cycles even in history. And so part of the premise of the book is we're alive at a very interesting time. And about every 100 years or so, you get all this change kind of jammed into about a 20 or 30 year period. And um, so I think I think that's probably true of our time. My guess is you probably would affirm that. But even beyond the broader stroke of history, the innovation in healthcare has been stifled for so long. And um, you've been in healthcare a while, and you know, good hospice people, we deal with constipation. When you constipate innovation, it comes fast and furious, and yeah. it feels like that's also on the horizon here. And then on top of that, we have the silver tsunami of the baby boomers that are, you know, going to probably make up the rest of my career, your career that we're going to be caring for. So I think that makes this a very fascinating time. So in that, in that um, kind of setting the table, what do you think that boards need to know, Kent, in terms of 
Helping them provide the governance and their fiduciary responsibility in the hospice and palliative care space, especially over these next five years. Yes, yeah, so I, I I wasn't quite sure that I would ever draw a comparison to disimpaction uh, in in innovation, but I think it's an apt description. And you know, as as we look at the the times that we're in, um, it's accelerating. So when we think of ages, the the Bronze Age, you know, and then the industrial age and the agricultural age. And we see all this compression, a lot of it's technology, the world's become a smaller place. Um, And I think that's true in healthcare. So when I think about our board, um, one of the challenges with boards is their volunteers. And I often hear from my board, man, there's so much going on and there's so much complexity, but I have to remember they're only dropping in every three months. And as much as we, give them monthly updates and communicate with them. They're volunteers. Some of them have full-time jobs. Some of them are retired and want to enjoy their life. So I start with when when a board member comes on, what are the responsibilities of the board? And there's really three defined from a legal perspective. There's duty of care, duty of loyalty, and duty of obedience. And so in that framework, we try to say, how can we help you ensure those duties are met? And then what responsibilities beyond those duties lie with you as a board? And we really talk about the responsibility of stewardship, that fiduciary oversight that they provide to the board to make sure that our compass is pointed in true north and that as a leader, I'm affirming that and and keeping us on course. And then, of course, the quality of our service, which I think also people forget ties back to our brand. And what does our brand mean to the community? And then finally, that oversight around compliance. You know, we're in a very regulated industry and the regulatory environment, since I've been in hospice care, has only continued to intensify. So those three aspects really guide me in what does a board need to know and what does what what's coming, right? Um, you've heard me say, and you and I have talked a lot about this, and I think we're kindred spirits. Data is the new currency of healthcare. And so the board relies on us as leaders to provide them information. I think the timeliness of that information becomes really, really, really important. And so what we've done is we've gone to a a digital medium called Board Effect, and that's how we disseminate all of our information. We want that to be as real time as possible for our board members. I think with the advances in technology, the other thing that we're starting to embark on, and we just started this year, is creating heat maps around risk and liability. And if you think about as your organization grows, so does the complexity, so does the scope. And we're reminded in the conditions of participation, our quality and compliance programs should reflect the complexity and um, the, the scope of our mission. So it may be different, a little bit different for a smaller hospice than a larger hospice, but nonetheless, that's what we should be paying attention to. And that's how we try to inform our boards. So this idea of heat maps, when we think of today having to have insurance against um, uh, technology uh, leaks, you know, whether it's HIPAA or or whatever, um, we have a workforce today of over 1,400 staff members. 95% of them carry at least one technologically driven device from mobile phones, all of our CNAs, 
That's how they document. All of our nurses just this year, we switched to iPads. All of our physicians, many of our clinicians have laptops. So there's a concern there. Even though we have insurance for that, if we have any breaches, you're only going to drive up the cost of that. So how can we show the board that both through our insurance products, through our attention, our technology, uh, we have the ability to remotely wipe any device if it's lost or stolen. Um, those kind of things help reduce risk and liability. So this idea of painting a picture where the board can really see and look, if you say to your board, well, we've got everything under control, I'm not sure you do. Control is pretty elusive. So we want to make sure that if something isn't in control or something is creating a risk or liability, that we know about it. And that's really important from my perspective. I think the other thing is we think about um, governance going forward. The boards need to understand this idea of nimbleness. And we've really enforced that since the day that I've gotten here. Being nimble uh, is a board. I think my experience with boards over the last 30 years is that most of the decision-making and work gets done at the executive committee. And so creating that group that you can rely on, that can be engaged more than just um, the full board becomes important for us as a leader. I was just recently at a, a national conference in Atlanta, Leading Age, and I was on a panel. And you know, one of the things I shared with the group that I was speaking with is, this idea of partner or parish. And I think boards have to be very, very um, open, nimble, responsive to this idea of partnering. And as you know, partnerships can take on many different forms. It can be merger, it can be joint venture, it can be contractual, but nonetheless, boards have to understand how to navigate that. So the other thing that I would say as a leader um, in, in working with our board, is making sure that you identify the right resources that the board is hearing from and can rely on. As a best practice, we have our council attend all board meetings, and it's not to create um, client attorney privilege. It's to provide a legal resource when we're wrestling with certain questions. So our, our attorney takes the minutes for us and he's also there as a resource for the board to help us navigate complexity, legal issues, regulatory issues. Um, and we've done that. We've brought in governance consultants. We brought in consultants of all types of fashion. I think making your board aware that you as an organization are not being insular, that you're seeking guidance, you're seeking counsel, uh, you're engaging resources to help you navigate this. This is a complex time. And it's very fluid. It's really fast moving. So from just a sort of a overreaching, that's the areas that, that we focus in. And then with stewardship, what we call stewardship, um, fiduciary responsibility, the board, financial oversight, um, we're moving away from an annual budget to a rolling budget. I think as hospices, and this has been true of everywhere I go, when you think about the budget cycle, you're sort of continuously in it anyway. <laughs> and then if I sit in a room in August and I'm trying to project 18 months from then what the census is going to be in December of the following year or 
16 months uh, in the following year. We're not really good at that. We're not very accurate. And there's so many influences on that that we don't know about. A new competitor in our market or a competitor leaving or a health system merging with another one. There's so many things that can happen that can influence that census. The demographics, I think we understand it. And as you described the silver tsunami, hey, we're going to go from two and a half million deaths on average in 2021 to by 2060, 4 million deaths a year. And just think about that. The need for our care and our services is only going to continue to arise. But we only we also have non-traditional competitors and traditional competitors kind of flooding our space. So I've said to the board, let's take the trailing three months from a financial perspective and the trailing 12 months from an activity perspective, referrals, admissions, uh, conversion rate, live discharge. And let's create the right formula that helps us project the next three months, not the next 12 months so that we can be more accurate. Most of our underlying expenses don't change that fast or that much. Maybe a new contract for DME or, or um, medical supplies, that might change, but that's incremental and it's really not that large of a change. So 2022 is the first year that we're going to go to this. And I, I talk about that with you because as we think about the future, it's back to that nimbleness. It's back to more real time. Uh, that's our rationale and logic for that. So broad stroke. That's really good, Kit. There's going to be a lot to unpack here. The first thing is more <laughs> of just a technical question. When you talked about the attorney, is this attorney actually on your staff or is it really someone that's your outside firm, just your legal counsel? Yeah, my, my experience with inside counsel is that you you, you don't really reduce your legal expense. Yep. So. We can need to use a little firm that's well-rounded, meaning, you know, they can help us with labor, real estate, regulatory. Um, so it's outside counsel, but there is a count, the, the lawyer that represents us for the firm. Uh, he's kind of like air traffic control, if you will. Yep. When we have a labor issue, he gives it to the labor department, real estate. Um, but he's also at our strategic planning meetings because... That serves as a shortcut, which I think overall helps reduce the expense yep. uh, from our perspective because we're not always trying to catch him up or teach him, yep. but he's outside counsel. That's awesome. Well, I think you and I were hypothesizing beginning, this is going to be a series, so I think it will be. So here's where I'd like to probably, because um, there's some really key themes here I want to unpack, but you alluded to the competition. In fact, you and I were in a meeting and I think you coined the term hyper competition. And I think the board needs to understand that. And I think you said it's just coming from multiple directions. Can you just unpack that a little bit, Kent? Because I think that's huge. It's not just hospices that you need to worry about. Yeah, no, it's not. And as you think about, you know, one, one of our basic assumptions when we do strategic planning is that reimbursement is not going to keep pace with expense. That's true for most everybody. And um, so the home health agency down the street who wants to have another source of revenue gets into hospice. On the healthcare system spectrum, I think there's sort of two ends of that spectrum. There's health systems and they're in the minority on the spectrum who want a partner. And then a majority of health systems want to own everything. So we see health systems saying, I'm going to get into hospice. 
Don't even get me started on venture capital and private equity entering our space. But that's a key point. I think you need, because that is a, that I've never seen that as much as it's now in my 25 years and you've got more than me. Well, to your point, it's accelerating, but history, you, you mentioned being a history buff. There's really good history here when we look at other segments where private equity or venture capital has sort of set their sights on. Uh, think about home oxygen. Think about DME. Uh, think about home care. Um, private equity's job is to create margin for a select few investors. It's not to enhance quality. It's not to strengthen a balance sheet. It's not to do any of those things. In fact, more often than not, the balance sheet is leveraged. And then once the return is positive for the investors, they don't really care what happens to the business. That's somebody else's problem. We've seen that most recently in DME. You know, our local DME providers, we used to have dozens. We're down to one or two and they're struggling. So that private equity in in hospice care, um, it's worrying me. And I'll give you one of the indicators that really makes me worry. We had a competitor in our market in 2018 that was sold um, pretty high multiple. And the private equity firm that bought them um, two years later turned around and sold them again because they had appreciated that much. In that period of time, we watched their turnover went through the roof. The good ones we, of course, went after, said, hey, join, join our mission. Um, but what we've heard in the marketplace repeatedly is poor service, um, poor attention to detail. And so it sounds like that offers us an opportunity, but it also creates confusion and chaos at the same time. So I'm very concerned about that. And I, I started with, I think there's the potential for sort of an existential crisis for not-for-profit hospices. Hey, that's not the world according to me. That's the world according to the data that we look at. Then we look at the aspires of the world, Oak Street Health, all of the sort of non-traditional competitors that are saying, hey, we do palliative care. And I think the only thing I hear when I hear that phrase is delay or averting to hospice care. Yep. It's substit- so, I, I know you're familiar with the term. It's substitution competition. It's yes. a substitution to us, and many other yes. industries have seen that. And so the other thing, but the I, problem, Chris, is it's not a substitution, it, it, right? Yeah. Because a substitution would say that's like maybe the difference between Sweet and Low and Splenda, right? Right. I'm going to substitute. However, these are Medicare beneficiaries who've worked their whole life, and they're supposed to have access to their Medicare benefits. That's great and pushback. I know in that substitution, there's no spiritual care. There's no psychosocial care. Um, It's still fragmented. It's not coordinated. And then it doesn't um, benefit the family after the death. So I I just sit there and I think this is, this is, not good for our aging population. Yeah, that's a huge point, Kent, because you're right. It's, you know, in many respects, we're not true free market in healthcare and definitely not in hospice because of how the ultimate customer gets to us. There's so many other shoots and ladders before they get to us. And so that is great pushback because you're right in the truest sense. It's not. Well, Kent, we're going to wrap this one and we're going to do another one if you don't mind, because I think there's several more points I want to come back. 
And so our listeners really appreciate you. And um, we're going to have Kent back and finish this conversation. And as I always do, I'll finish with a bookend. Uh, great quote. This is one that occurred to me preparing for this conversation with Kent. It's actually from one of my great uh of folks I love to read because he makes me think it's a guy named Peter Singe. He's really the father of systems thinking. He says, if any one idea about leadership has inspired organizations for thousands of years, it's the capacity to hold a shared picture of the future we seek to create. Thanks for listening to TCN Talks. <music>